2: 35 years later, Bias' legacy is still making an impact. From Spotify and the Ringer Podcast Network, this is What If, the Lynn Bias story. I'm Jordan Ritter-Kahn.
0: Episode four of Flying Coach. I'm Peter Schrager. I am joined by the head coach of the Los Angeles Rams. My co-host, Sean McVeigh. Sean, how are we doing today?
1: Doing great, Peter. You know, it's it's been a little bit of a stressful day, but now that I get on with you, it's it's uh, everything is good. Let's get uh, let's get it going. We got Zach Taylor, head coach of the Bengals. A lot of fireworks to come for this offense. We had Jamar Chase, already a potent Joe Burrow leading the way. T Higgins in his second year. Tyler Boyd, don't sleep on him. I'm excited. Maybe not as much as you, Peter, but I'm excited.
0: I think you sold it pretty well. Let's get to Zach Taylor, episode four, coach of the Bengals and former colleague of Sean McVay's. Zach, what's up, big man?
1: Yeah, appreciate you guys having me. Thrilled to be here. Former Big 12 player of the year as well. Don't forget about that, man. This <laughs> I remember watching Zach thinking, who is this guy balling at Nebraska? Then he gets into coaching, but don't sleep on that career. A couple years ago, he was inducted into Nebraska's Hall of Fame. He is the man. I knew where my checkdowns were. That's for sure. Yeah, <laughs> he's being
0: modest, but Sean, you're right. I was going through all the stuff, and Zach knows this because I've shown his combine footage every year on Good Morning Football since he's gotten the head coaching job. Because I just love showing it. He was throwing the ball. He was at the combine as a player, but this is a guy who went nine and three, broke the passing yard record at Nebraska. Zach, don't be modest here. One of the greatest quarterbacks, especially throwing the ball in Nebraska history. Uh, what was your career as a college player, and then as you progressed out of that, what was it like those first few years? Out of college, trying to find yourself as an NFL player, then of course in the Canadian Football League.
3: Yeah, it was you know the, the harsh reality that I wasn't going to be an NFL quarterback. You know, I made it through. Uh, I didn't even make it through training camp. I got cut the first day, and so quickly transitioned to what I knew best, and that was coaching. I didn't know econ, I didn't know accounting. I, I struggled in all those classes. So uh, I called up Bill Callahan. I volunteered in Nebraska, and that was my first put in the door coaching
1: was. So our first, so our, working together, our first year and. So shoot, I almost said Washington, but with the LA Rams, we, uh, our, our first year, you know, we knew we needed to add some skill guys. And so not only was Zach a good coach, but he was the best coach I've been with in terms of helping facilitate a good workout with these receivers and tight ends, because man, he throws a nice ball where you can evaluate it. Bill Walsh is number one thing he used to say about a quarterback. Does he throw a catchable ball? We go on a workout circuit. We're flying all around, man. There was a couple nights where I didn't know if we were going to land, but we got (laughs) me and Matt LaFleur and Zach Taylor. We're all stuffed into a small little airplane. We're going around working out Gerald Everett and Cooper Cup. We had Evan Ingram on the list. I don't think there was a dropped ball the whole weekend, thanks to the exquisite location that Zach was just putting on all these passes. I kept, I kept watching. I'm thinking I'm not evaluating these receivers, but I'm thinking, all right, Zach, (laughs) Hey, you better be careful. You're going to be a little too good. We might have to throw you in there in some preseason action. You'll be ready to go. I think
3: somewhere in Atlanta, there's some, some hidden video at pace Academy of Sean covering Gerald Everett on nine route. Um, I I probably had a back shoulder. I'm sure Sean was staying on top of the route, but, uh, there was a pretty good workout video from that, that workout back in the day. I think it's a
0: great, this is great access because I never know what goes on. We I just hear mean, this team worked out this player. So let's go there. Gerald Everett's working out in Atlanta somewhere at Pace Academy. And it's literally Zach Taylor throwing him balls and Sean, you're playing DB. Is that how, I mean, is that really what we're talking about here?
1: It's part of the insight that we got. And then we, we we decided to have a couple adult beverages later on that <laughs> night. We made a good weekend of it, but it was... Uh, is that yeah, how it mean, usually is I, though? Well, that was one of the first times that we've done that. One of the only times since then, you know, I don't know if we had too much fun taking the plane all over the country, but <laughs> we, we had some stops all over the joint and we ended up, ended up, uh, you know, adding two really good players from those workouts and Gerald Everett and Cooper cup, Cooper cup was kind of, he wrapped up the, the, uh, the workout circuit for us, but Zach Taylor, his arm was, he, he got some good work, man. <laughs> the old, uh, the old pea shooter got nice with loose. He was, he was spraying it around. In in
3: three days, we went from Ole Miss to Atlanta to East Carolina to that high school field outside of Columbus to work at that tight end from oh,
1: Andy Sheehan. Yeah,
3: yeah, Adam, Adam Sheehan. Sheehan.
1: Yeah. I know, I know. It's a joke.
3: <laughs> <laughs> so that was after that was after a somewhat long night for some of the people on the plane. And uh, we were it, in
1: Columbus it, that night, right? Because we couldn't did we stop in Columbus, I feel yeah. like the night before. <laughs> oh. And you guys made
3: me throw at eight in the morning <laughs> on this high school field where you guys just taunted me for every scene <laughs> route that I couldn't get to them. So it was a that was a long trip.
0: Zach, yeah. take us take us through that first year of uh sh- you know working with Sean McVay. Here's this head coach, he's three years younger than you. You leave where you were at the University of Cincinnati before that? Yep. You why'd you join LA? How'd you get in touch with Sean? How did you guys know each other? And what was that transition like in that first year in LA?
3: That's a funny story. You know, Sean and I had met a couple of years ago at the combine. Um, he was at Washington, and I was at Miami, you know, just two young guys connected uh, at Shulas, probably. Um,
1: great steakhouse. Right.
3: and so uh you're right I was working for Tommy Tuberville and he resigned so so you know there's a couple of days there where I'm out of work and Sean calls me out of the blue I didn't even know I had Sean's number I'm actually playing golf and and my phone starts ringing and it's, it's Sean McVay's name I, I didn't even know he had my number I had his number and um says hey I'd like you to come be the assistant receiver coach and I said you know it kind of caught me off guard LA I'm from Oklahoma I've been in Cincinnati like I'm not sure if I'm fit in LA and so I said Sean just give me like a day or two to think about it." yeah yeah no problem no problem no problem and, and so oh, probably I an hour later, I hadn't even gotten a lunch. He calls like, what's your decision? Are you coming or not? I'm
1: like, oh, God, I'm coming. I'm that was, that was two days for me. I was waiting, man. <laughs> I was going to jump on it. Oh, uh, you know what's funny though, Peter? He's, he's a stud, but I had been watching Zach from afar and, and and Zach and I have talked about this. I remember, you know, because as young coaches, you know, you're a fan of coaching and you know, admire the way that guys handle themselves. And it's kind of a small fraternity of guys. And I had seen the way that he had handled himself so well with the transition when Dan Campbell became the interim and he became the interim offensive coordinator with Miami. He did a hell of a job. I mean, they were were really doing some really good things offensively, but more than anything, watching the way that he handled himself in the press conferences, and you're saying, you know, this guy, I've heard great things about him. We had some similar friends and some mutual connections, but I was so impressed with that. Then he goes to Cincinnati and, you know, when the opportunity came about where you're kind of looking to, to be able to, you know, work with some great coaches for a guy of his caliber to be available, I said, Hey, whatever we can do to get him on the staff is the most important thing. And then, you know, that, you know, I didn't realize he'd break my heart and leave me two years later, but (laughs) I did know that he had a, you know, he was a great coach that had already achieved a bunch of success just based on who he is and his ability to communicate and his knowledge of the game. But I was definitely impatient wanting to. I was pressuring the hell out of him to commit to coming and it all worked out.
3: You know, it's just knowing Sean's energy. I I hadn't interacted with him too much. And um, uh, you know, he, he sold me on it on an initial call. And I just, I just had to have time to call my wife to tell her we move moving to LA, start looking for houses, you know, and, and then the next step is, you know, you're not actually in LA, you're in Thousand Oaks. So, um, <laughs> uh, but, but best decision we made and, and had a great time there those two years we were there.
0: You get there that first year, that staff is the two of you, Matt LaFleur, who else is on that offensive staff? Because I think someday we'll look back on that and say, wow, that was a pretty amazing collection of talent in one room.
1: Yeah, Shane Waldron was on that staff as well, who's now the OC for the Seahawks. Greg Olson. Yeah, and Greg Olson. I mean, when you when you look at it, there, there was a lot of great coaches on that staff, but you look at Greg Olson and Shane are both OCs. Matt and Zach are head coaches. I mean, that's pretty rare in and of itself. And then you had a bunch of other quality coaches as well. Some guys that are still currently with us and and some guys that are doing their thing elsewhere.
0: And Zach, when you interviewed for the Bengals, what was your approach to that interview? Walking into that room, trying to sell them on, "Hey, I know I'm a quarterbacks coach, and a couple of years ago I was at the University of Cincinnati, but I am ready to be the head coach of the Cincinnati Bengals."
3: I think what's unique working for Sean is he prepares you for that. You know, it's not just a head coach doing his thing, and he isolates everybody away from all the things that are on his table. He he does a great job of of educating everybody on the staff why he's making decisions and um letting everyone know the intent of all the decisions. And so it prepares you without even realizing it to be a head coach. Um, just the way we practiced, the way we met, um Sean filling you in with all the details and why we're doing things big picture. You just walk into an interview and and you know you got a book, you're ready for the interview, you got the book that everyone does, you never even open it up. You know, you're just talking from the heart and talking from experience and we were still in the middle of a of a of a Super Bowl run. And so I'm just talking through our our daily life and how we do it because I believed in it because Sean believes in it and our players believed in it. And so it's very easy to communicate to organizations when they ask you those questions.
0: One of the things we we love doing on this podcast, Zach, is we like going down story time and getting (laughs) stories from coaches, the things that you've learned, the things that you've experienced. And we have a mutual friend, Zach, I won't say who it is, but he told me, you've got to ask Zach about the time he was in his early 30s working for the Miami Dolphins, and it was his job to recruit Peyton Manning to be a Miami Dolphin. Can you go into story time and take us through that process that you were the one rolling out the red carpet for, oh, I don't know, maybe the greatest quarterback of all time?
3: Sure. Uh, Yeah, so we thought, um, (laughs) wrongly, that Peyton was going to fly down to Miami and, and come work out for us in the indoor bubble. And we'd have a chance to meet with them and interview them. And, and that is not what happened. What really <laughs> happened um, was one day at about 11 a.m., uh, someone came from my office and said, well, hey, we're on a plane at noon to Indy, and you need to put your cut up to sell Peyton Manning on our system. <laughs> this is this, is in early, so this my is in early March, and I didn't even know what our system was. You know, Mike Sherman <laughs> had just come from Texas AM, and Joe Philbin had come from Green Bay. Yeah, we, we'd had some conversations, but it wasn't. We didn't have the players practicing yet. We weren't meeting with the players till late April. Um, we were still in the free agent process, very much so. So everybody kind of, you know, coaches know how that works. You're, you're kind of in the personnel section of the offseason, and then you're going to get to the playbook. And um, so I, I'm putting together this this cut of 200 plays. So Brian Tannehill at Texas A&M and Aaron Rodgers at Green Bay. And and uh, and I, <laughs> you know, I, I I'm the quality. I'm the quarterback coach, but I'm the only one on the place. the owner, the GM, Joe Philbin, Mike Sherman and me. So I am the quality control on the airplane. So I, I grab a, uh, you know, a projector. I, I've got one of the things to carry to project on the projector. I've got the laptop. I've got the remotes. I'm, just, I'm on this private airplane. I put it on. I'm so out of my element at this point. Yeah. Um, I get on the plane. I'm, I'm terrified. I, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm typing out the script so that the other coaches know what the cutups are. So when Peyton Manning's in the room, everyone knows what, what play's about to cut up. So I'm trying to be the best quality control in the moment that I can. We pull into this airport hangar in Indianapolis. Peyton's in this back room waiting on us. Um, I walk in the room and sure enough, there's already a projector put up there. We've <laughs> already, got all the materials. i, I all this stuff on the, and I, we don't need any <laughs> of it. So, uh, so anyway, Peyton was awesome. You know, we we had a couple hour meeting and um, he treated everyone with so much respect. And that, that's I didn't know him well. i worked his camp before. There's no way he knew who I was when I walked in the room, but but he's such a good guy. He figured it out very quickly and talked to me about the camp and how he met me years ago. And I can't imagine he actually remembered that. But um, he was just a salted earth guy, and I was really impressed. And obviously, he didn't choose the Miami Dolphins; he chose Denver. But um, it certainly was a nice memory to
0: have. <laughs> Sean, we got Denver coming in with John Elway. They uh, take him to the Country Club. He's having lunch with John Elway. They're playing golf. Zach Taylor gave it a shot. We always say, "Shoot your shot." You almost did it. Yeah, yeah, there's no rest there, no rest.
1: It's
0: a pretty cool deal. Yeah,
1: yeah, if it makes you feel any better, when I was in Washington, I think Kyle and and Coach Shanahan thought they had a chance too. It was, uh, it, you know, everybody was in on that. I don't know whether whenever he had it figured out, but it worked out pretty well for the Broncos, and everybody else was just left in the dust. <laughs> oh, sure did. Here's what I would be interested to know, Zach. Take me through. Here you guys are last year, got the number one overall pick. I know I was texting you jokingly saying, if you don't take this, Burrow, I'm going to have to come to Cincinnati and smack you. But I'm watching their tape. When you and Brian and, and the rest of your coaches and, and Duke are, are kind of going through this, You know, take me through that process and and you know what that entailed. And really, how soon did you know, all right, Joe Burrow, this is the guy that we want. Can't wait to move forward with him. All the things that I know has you so excited about the future with him leading the way. Yeah,
3: so uh, probably five days after the season ended, um, we knew we, we knew we had the number one pick as soon as the last game ended. And, and so Brian and I really didn't wait. You know, we, we went through and watched all thirteen games, fifteen, whatever it was. Uh, probably within the first two weeks of January. And you know, some of our scouts had already done that. Mike Paz and Duke Tobin, they'd already done that. Um, so we we watched all the quarterbacks. We had Justin Herbert at the Senior Bowl, so we made sure and watched all of his games before we actually put our hands on him at the Senior Bowl. He was really impressive. Um, Watch a lot of those guys, too. but but there was just something about Burrow. You know, watching those games where you get through game, probably the Texas game. I think week two or week three. It's like, driving this guy. There's yes. something unique about this guy. And um, then when you got to know him, the first time we ever met him was those 18 minutes. The comp, you know, I talked to him once on the phone. Uh, we got to see him for 18 minutes. You know, is is at first it was me and, and Mike Brown and Duke Tobin met with him for a couple of minutes, and then we had the interview process. But uh, just really impressive. Uh, probably sometime in March. You know, we we had a pretty good idea that this was our guy, and um, so got a chance to utilize all those all those interviews leading up to the draft to um, to make sure it was the perfect fit. And it sure was.
0: How hard was it to keep that secret? And are was there an incentive to keep this secret? I always am confused when teams have the first pick and they're like, <laughs> "We're not telling Like, what was the point of keeping that secret? And I know it got out eventually that you guys are probably going to take them, sure. but you never came out and were vocally like, "Joe Burrow's the man." Yeah. There's no
3: reason to publicly, you know, Joe knew, we knew. Um, sometimes the league likes to keep that stuff quiet. So you just don't make a big deal about it. That's easy for us to do, you know, and, and uh, you just answer the questions that come at you. But um, Joe knew that he was going to be the number one pick and, and we feel good about it.
0: And how cool is it to see him finally on the field? I know the injury was a shortened yeah. season for him, but gosh, he was so special in those few weeks we had him on the field. I think of that week two game against Cleveland, everyone's hyped about the Browns. Here comes Joe Burrow throwing 61 pass attempts, throwing no interceptions, throwing three touchdowns. I mean, gosh, Zach, it was a small sample size, but there is a lot to like about what we saw from Joe Burrow, the NFL quarterback last year.
3: It was, and we really felt like we were hitting rhythm there, you know, weeks six, seven, eight, nine, ten, 7, um, 10 before the injury. You know, even in the first half, he played against Washington. We only had, you know, I think nine points when he got hurt, um, but but we felt like we were in a great rhythm and moving it up and down the field and just couldn't put it in the end zone. And, uh, so it that was disappointing because we really felt like, you know, we had a good chance there the second half of the season. Um, unfortunately what happened
0: happened and now he's, he's making a really good recovery. And it's good to see him back on the field. He's got this swagger to him. You see him smoking a cigar, right? Like how, what's the line between you encourage that as a coach, like be that guy. And then, Hey, scale it back. Or do you even have the ability as a coach? And Sean, I ask you where you could tell a guy, Hey, tone it down a little bit.
3: The, the word I've used is edge he got he's got an edge about him, and I can't describe it. Um, it's it's on a different level. There's nothing you got to say to this guy. He when he's in the building, he's he's ready to work, and that's what he wants to do. And um, he's going to hold everybody accountable, myself, the other players, the other coaches. Um, He holds himself the most accountable, you know. And so uh, that that's what you want from your quarterback. He's the he's the undisputed leader of that offense. We got some great guys, great leaders, but there's no question that all eyes are on this guy. And, you know, so it's it's really fun to have that at quarterback. Is as as we all know, man, it's, it's driven by the quarterback and we got a great one.
1: Zach, tell him the story and you can help me remember. I remember talking to you early on when you first started getting some exposure to him in camp and there was something about a red zone period that he didn't like himself or wanted to do it over again. But I think that kind of illustrates exactly what you're talking about. The standards, just the ownership, the edge that this guy has. I thought that was a great story you had told me last year.
3: Yeah. So the first day we installed the red zone, um, you know, in training camp, you know, you install it. It's a lot of concepts guys haven't done before, especially coming from college. And so you get out there and it's a lackluster period against the defense just because it's the first time you're really doing it uh, against a group. And and he was just disappointed by, by himself, the offense in general, and, and uh, ask us, Hey, we need to do this again tomorrow or, or the next day, whenever it was. And so sure, you know, but that's what he wants to do. And we're, we're going to do it to make sure that he feels comfortable in the red zone. And we did it. It was a much better day. And um, you know, it's just, He's got to win. That's his mindset is I got to win. I didn't win that period. So we got to do it again because I got to go win, you know, and that's how he wants to finish the drill. And, and uh, he's really impressive. way.
1: What says so much, it's one thing, you know, cause everybody talks and throws this word leadership out there. And, and you get a lot of guys that do what they think they're supposed to do. And then you get certain guys that it is just part of their nature that, man, I, I'm a competitor This is who I am. I don't need anybody to tell me, hey, the right thing to do as a quarterback is you should want to reset the drill. You should want to do it. This is how Joe Burrow's innately wired. And those guys that are really special are wired that way. You know, you hear about these elite competitors and I thought Zach just said it best. They have an edge to them. Mm -hmm. There's an edge that all these great players have. They want to be coached hard, but nobody demands more of them than they do of themselves. And that's how when I hear Zach talk about the stories, you know, you talk about these guys that are the igniters. They raise the level of everyone around them. And when I heard Zach talk about it, the excitement that I hear him talk about Joe that comes out in his voice, you can't fake it. And this is what that guy's done. You watch their games, it is powerful to see the belief that this guy instills in his teammates around him. And that's what the best ones do. I thought that was reflected. And then I think what says as much as anything that you've heard me talk about, Peter, when I can't remember if it was last week or a couple weeks ago, then to say, okay, we know we got a guy that can lead us, but then to find a way to get some tough, hard-earned wins towards the latter part of the year against Houston on Monday night against the Steelers, that to me is so instrumental in building a foundation. And then, oh, by the way, let's add Joe Burrow back into the mix. (laughs) We get Jamar Chase. Some exciting stuff going on with the Cincinnati Bengals and Zach Taylor, baby. I know you. I know you
3: thought we should have drafted a lineman, Sean. uh, But we went with the receiver, with the guy that scores touchdowns. Uh, I'm just kidding. Yes, Uh, yes. You texted me two years in a row now on your top top, 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 top five picks to draft. (laughs) Usually playmakers.
1: Hey. I know I didn't need. I know you didn't need my help on those, but you'll thank me later. Oh,
0: yeah. Yeah. Um, Jamar Chase was the pick, and obviously, publicly, it was Sewell Chase Waddle. What did you guys see from Chase? And besides him just being a wide receiver and you loving that dynamic position, what did you see in Chase that made him worthy of the number five overall pick?
3: Playmaker is the first word you use. and it's not just outside as an X receiver down the field making 50-50 contested plays. This guy's got a great understanding of the nuances of route running. Um, he's patient he's got really strong hands his lower body is similar to a running back i mean he's six feet 207 and so similar to cooper cup in the sense that he's got unbelievable body control he's running full speed but when he judges where the ball's at he can shut his body down and have that great control now to run after the catch and maximize it um oh yeah and it's hard to bring him down on first contact you know just like cooper you know he usually makes that first guy miss or pulls through the tackle and um, and then he's got the top end speed to finish it off i mean there's there's countless Looking routes, Sean, and, and all these routes where he makes that first guy miss and then he, he takes it 70 for touchdown. So uh, that's just the game-breaking element that's really exciting to add on top of Tyler Boyd, on top of T. Higgins, who's going to have a great second year, and, and we got a lot of other guys behind him. So I'm uh, just really excited about that group as a whole.
0: Can I I ask if Mr. Burrow comes and knocks on the door or gives you a text at any point and says, hey, I did throw 20 touchdown passes to this cat a (laughs) couple. Does does that even come into play that they had this connection and that, hey, maybe the quarterback would be a little happy to have his guy?
3: That's not the deciding factor, but that's an element that you got to take into account. You know, it's, hey, we know what the chemistry is going to be. There's not that feeling out process right now where if you take a receiver that played for X school and he and Joe are feeling each other out, hey, I like this route, run this way. They walked in with two years of connection there. And they hit the ground running. Joe knows how to speak to him. He knows how to communicate with them. Jamar's the same way. Um, so you've seen that connection just from OTA number one. You already see it right out of the But that wasn't Joe's personality coming and say, hey, you got to take this guy. It was there was me asking the questions. Hey, do you want to play with him? Yeah, I do. What would your excitement level be out of 10? It'd be a 10. OK, well, that's,
1: <laughs> I don't really need to add too many other questions
3: here. So uh, it was it's,
1: it's good. He is – you know what's amazing? How much did it matter, if at all, that you know, you're know you watching the most recent tape of Jamar and it's Joe throwing him the ball where he's winning the Bolitnikoff award? You know, like the crazy thing is, is here you are, you're watching a guy that – you know, Herbert has a great year. Joe Burrow has a great year. And Justin Jefferson, oh, by the way, was the, you know, a, a receiver on that LSU team. And the guy that ends up winning the Belitnikov that year is Jamar Chase. I mean, yeah. watching that team was unbelievable. And and you can't help but say like, man, I, I can't believe that this is the most recent film that I'm watching. Did that affect you guys at all or, or not so much? You know, it, it's hard not to, um, yeah. just
3: because you can see a, a lot of elements of of our offense, right? I mean, it's it's uh, it's it's the Saints going down to LSU and, and, and all the things that that Sean and I have grown up running, and so it's very easy to visualize because it is an NFL offense, and, and Joe Brady and those guys did a great job down there with it. You know, just looking at one route, seeing Joe Burrow throwing the go over the top, back shoulder, a flatter throw on a cover two type hole shot. So, so you already know that they have the chemistry on just just take that one route for example. There's plenty more. Um, so it was easy to see how he fit in our offense. It was easy to see how he fit with our quarterback. Those weren't guesses that you had to make, you know, it was very easy to see on the film. And, uh, so again, that was just part of the process. We had to do all the background stuff, but, but that stuff made it, made it pretty easy to make that decision.
0: Zach, can, can we go back to your time coming out of the draft? We mentioned you were cut the first day, uh, you said of training camp by the Buccaneers? I, I didn't even
3: make, I was packing my bag. Is that I just took right? engagement pictures with my wife and Norma. <sighs> And I was zipping my bag up to get on the flight to Tampa. And, and somebody gave me a call and the scouts gave me a call and told me to ship my playbook back. So uh, that was back in the day when when the 90 man roster draft picks didn't count until they were signed towards the 90 man So as soon as you signed them, you had to cut guys. There's the previous CBA. Um, it's not that way anymore. But. But back, to, I didn't know that. You know, my agent did a great job of educating me on that one. So, you know, I'm seeing all my other undrafted guys get cut. My buddies getting cut the days before. I'm thinking, well, I'm good. And then sure enough, they got, they must have signed uh, uh, Gaines Adams or somebody. And, and uh, I got the cut there.
0: All right. So that was in Tampa. But then you go to, winnipeg and this is fascinating to me can you tell the listeners and sean who i don't know if he knows the full what was the depth chart of the 2007 winnipeg blue bombers quarterbacks room
3: so so i showed up in september and that was halfway through the season and i joined the best team in the league the winnipeg we were number one in the league so i just show up i don't know anything i knew that i wasn't going to cut it when i got off the plane at midnight i walked on the field and the gm handed me a ball and the ball was battered (laughs) <laughs> and I got small hands. And I knew as soon as I picked that ball up, I thought in my head I like, ain't going not work. So uh so I was a fourth string quarterback. Our starter was Kevin Glenn. He was the league MVP that year. He went to Illinois State, uh phenomenal. He played up there for 20 years. Uh he, he was the starter. Uh he had an MVP year that year, led us to the Grey Cup. Our backup was Ryan Danwitty, record holder at, at Boise State. Boise, yeah. before Kellen Moore, before he was kind of the first one. Uh it was him. The third string quarterback with Cliff Kingsbury. <laughs> and I was sportsman quarterback I was practice squad quarterback and and our office was no bigger than the one I'm in right now it was where we met and, and our coach would sit behind the starting quarterback and they'd watch the film and then there was a love seat over on the side of the <laughs> wall and it was Ben Liddy me and Cliff just just packed into this love seat that was our meeting every single day and so that was that was my experience to CFL football it, it was so cold we had no indoor, it was so cold that the defense would go out there and practice, and the offense would like stay in like the dugout type practice. <laughs> and then when it was time to flip 30 minutes later, the other group would go inside because I'd be thrown out there in ski gloves. I mean,
1: it was freezing. Shot putting So Kingsbury's come a long way from sharing a love seat with you <laughs> to freaking showing everybody up, including you on draft night with his draft set up. Uh, you don't yeah. even you didn't even have a desk in yours,
0: Zach. We gotta talk about it. So you had the first pick overall. It's the first home draft. Cliff is in his whatever you want to call that thing. Zach, hey, you, we you got one to... ball
1: guy and one guy worried about getting dates. That's I mean, right. Seriously, I mean, like, Zach, <laughs>
0: what you? Th- I mean, you had no, you didn't even have a desk in the office. It was just a blank white room. What was going on? I, I think Cliff and I lead drastically different lives. Okay, um, <laughs> as you can see
3: by by uh, you know five year old girl headphones here. Um, so so I. I got this great crew. This COVID, this crew comes in and build. This was a garage that I'm in there now, and that's what you saw on TV. They come in and, and in seven days they build me an office because we realized this COVID thing's serious. Yeah, we're gonna work from home. I can't sit on my couch hunched over for the next four months. So these these guys do a great job. They build this office for me, and I ordered this this furniture that you see two weeks before the draft. And I cannot get this company to get it to me. And so <laughs> it's the day of, they're telling me it's going to be there. It doesn't show up. So so God bless the, the people around me are helping me. They're putting a desk in there, just trying to do something. It didn't even cross my mind how big of a deal it was going to be, to be honest with you. Uh, but it, it sure enough was. And, uh, you know, I got all the, then I was a Hertz, you know, manager at the counter and, and uh, trying to give people their keys and their room keys and things like that. So. Uh, it, people had some fun with it, and it, it's all good. I was hoping for redemption this year because, as you can see, it's not so bad. I haven't no,
1: it's looking good, man. You have up it, it, now. Now you got the swag going again. I, I was, I, you know, it was almost like I
3: didn't want COVID. I just needed to be of close contact. So you're knocked out of the office, <laughs> and I got to do it from home and show up on TV again and and get a chance to show up on your digs.
1: So Zach, you've. Uh, You know, I know we've talked about, you've listened to the show. Unfortunately, I could probably fill this segment and the rest of all of the episodes, as I've alluded to on some regrettable play calls to say the least, whether it's your tenure with the Miami Dolphins or with the Bengals right now, give me a moment that you say, you know, what the hell was I thinking? And where were you guys as my assistant coaches to help me say, don't do that. dumb." You know what? (laughs) <laughs> so one of my first game preseason game one
3: was the kansas city chiefs at kansas city and it's the end of the first half and we got the ball in the 40 going in and, and there was probably 10 11 12 seconds left we had a timeout and it was third and 10 okay so so we're on the 40 we just need to get the field goal reach. we just need five just be able to get five yards get a field goal temped up and and Sean, I we get a two by two and i'll call pressure 10 Okay, so there's a chance the quarterback's going to hold the ball a little bit here. Okay, so we take a sack, a seven yard loss. Now we're on the 47. I got a talk call timeout. I'm thinking, you know, I should have called triple slant, something to catch the ball moving, so we can get down, 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 timeout, kick the field goal, get to halftime. Yeah. So, so bad play call. We take a sack. So now there's five, there's that gray area. Of like four <laughs> seconds left, fourth down. You don't want to punt it. Uh, so we're going to throw a hail mary and. We get hit as we throw the Hail Mary and they take it off and they are running for a touchdown <laughs> at the end of the half. And so I'm sitting here watching on the sidelines like, you've got to be kidding me. We're going to throw a pick six on a Hail Mary in my first ever game as a head coach, a it's a preseason game. <laughs> um, and, and thank God, Travion Williams, a rookie running back, makes the tackle on like the five yard line, but he gets hurt. He hurts his ankle. He's out for the rest of preseason. So here I am, stupid play call on third down. I should have just called something, get the ball out of hands, quit game, get the field goal. The next play, fourth down, we throw a pick on a Hail Mary and they almost take us to the house. And and Sean, I, I mean, I feel like the biggest idiot on the planet. <laughs> that was one. You know, I take notes after every game I call, every situation. And that's when I've reflected back on many, many times. Don't ever do that every day. So.
1: Hey, give them, so I'll tell you, this is not <laughs> funny, but we can maybe look back on this and laugh. So, After Marcus Peters, who knows a lot of our terminology, you know, and obviously, you know, you have some concept carryover, (laughs) give him, give him, give him that story about where Marcus Peters goes the other way when we're making an audible check and we'll, we'll change (laughs) the Omaha route in both of our offenses for when we see our guy next year, but go ahead and give him. him Yeah. (laughs) So,
3: so it is Ryan Finley's first game. Okay. And we're playing Baltimore. And uh, that's not, that's not the easiest first game for Richard quarterback. And so no. uh, we're, we're hanging in there though. I, I think it was 21 to 10 um, and we're driving, we're, we're, on, we're in the red zone area. We're, you know, it's, it's a, uh, it's a normal down situation. First, second down and, and they're, they're going to zero blitzes. If I remember correctly, and he's getting to, a, to a, a max protection and, you know, he's trying to communicate with the receiver and instead of just the signal, he, he says Omaha. Oh, well <laughs> Marcus knows Omaha and, Marcus uh,
1: knows what that means
3: and so unfortunately and, and it was you know one of those regrettable moments for me because you're seeing it unfold and sometimes you're seeing it unfold and you're like but it's it just happens in an instant and and Marcus takes it back the other way and, and uh you know and, and so it's just it's those moments you gotta learn from and, and uh that's just part of educating some of these, these young players sometimes. And there's veteran players on the side of the ball that have heard a lot of terminology and a lot of communication. They study it. They, they study the game tapes. And I know Sean's the best in the business. at going back through the, the TV copies, you know, and making sure that, that he's self count himself and knowing what code words show up. And, and we do the same thing. And, and that was just one of those situations that didn't go so well for us.
0: That's actually really fascinating. Sean, what does that mean? So you will watch no. the broadcast copy. You'll put the volume up to hear if well, any audibles no. are picked up.
1: We have coaches. I mean, because you're mandated where you got to mic either your center or one of your guards. So nowadays, and especially last year, they pick oh, up no everything. Fans. Yeah. So that's a big thing that defensive coaches do around the league. So you better be in tune with what's being said and some of those things. But I can remember, you know, I, I talked to Zach after because it was around the time that uh, Marcus had just recently gotten to Baltimore and You know, I mean, Matt talked about his experiences when he was with the Titans going against the Ravens. I mean, I could go on and on about, you know, when uh, Wink Martindale just lit me, and he he got some calls that I have a lot of regrets on, but... Long story short, Finley had gotten to a good decision. The problem was is that Marcus could hear this and he had been in our system. So he knew, I mean, his eyes light up like some saucers, like, all right, I'm about to get a quick speed out. You got to be kidding me. I'm... And so I just felt bad for my guy because that easily could have happened to us. And, you know, smart players, they they do a good job. And it's and it's just like Zach said, it's a, it's a learning op and, you know, all of us, there's there's moments every single week as a play caller, not one, but multiple usually where you're saying, man, I wish I'd put our guys in a better spot. And fortunately, when you've got guys like like the Burroughs of the world or you know, like the Staffords, they can kind of bail you out and make you right uh, if you're wrong. But you want to try to be more right than you are wrong in terms of getting some of the looks and, and helping facilitate good execution from your player's perspective.
0: Zach, can you uh, can you give us your best Sean McVay story? Is there a fun one that maybe we could tell? That's oh, not that's uh, it's because uh, I mean here the listeners it's, you could hear it here. Yeah, I, I got
3: I got plenty. I mean, we could do it all night, but um, you know he, the guy just he's got energy like this at all times. <laughs> you know he comes to your office at at midnight on a on a Tuesday night, a game plan night, and he's drawn up ideas on my board, and he's selling me on it in that moment. You know I'm I'm tired, I'm about to fall asleep, and this guy's just, and, and that's why they've had so much success, you know, as a team and as an offense, because his his energy is endless. Um, but one thing Sean does not like is when you talk in the install meetings. And so oh, yeah. you're up there installing, there is nothing worse than when someone is just having a little side conversation. It might just be a coach and a player, but but that's just one thing Sean does not like. And uh someone that didn't seem to get that was Matt LaFleur. And so <laughs> I, I just get that, you know, I, I don't know Sean very well, that but Matt is and Sean the way they're brothers. They go way back and, and, you know, so they could get after each other and it's, it's all good. But I, I don't fall into that category yet. I just got to know Sean. So I was sitting next to Matt thinking this is harmless. And Sean's up there <laughs> installing and probably the first install meeting, Matt starts drawing something on my paper and saying something to me. And I can just see Sean just shooting his daggers. And so, so I, I'm, I'm kind of just. Moving back a little bit, I'm trying to talk to Matt. Matt keeps talking. And so Sean just, he blasts us right there in front of everybody. And so I think, okay, all right, I learned my lesson, you know. So the next day, you know, I scoot a little further down from Matt. And Matt, just, he comes back for more. It's almost like he liked it. So he, he does, did to talk to me again. So then eventually, I just had to move a row back and just totally distance myself from Matt, who's who's the greatest, most genuine person on the planet, but for whatever reason, he really liked to talk in those install meetings, and I—I I learned real fast. Sean is not like that, so um, I distanced myself quickly, and I, I found a spot in the row behind me. And uh, I don't know if Sean remembers that.
1: Too wrong. Oh, I—I <laughs> I, you know what? I remember Matt making me want to. Yes, Matt would. Inti- I feel like Matt would intentionally piss me off, though. Do you remember on the headsets? You know, like he's ready to change the game plan after we go like three and out. I'm like Matt. You've seen three plays. Will you just relax and let us get through a series before you start? He, it's it's like the wedding crashers. It's the it's the second. It's the beginning of the first quarter, and you want to throw a hail mary. Just relax, big guy. <laughs> so
3: that, that's the best Is is me and Matt would be in the press box. And and Matt is is like this guy watches more t- he knows more information about the t- opponent you're playing. it is unbelievable. And this guy just consumes tape he doesn't just consume it he, he retains it and can use it to his advantage and and he'd be up in the press box and and we'd be three plays in the game and he'd say something to me off, off the mic. And he'd say, should I tell Sean that? I'm like, ah, I just got to see from Sean right now. Like maybe, maybe don't say that. Yeah, I think I got to say it. I think I got to say it. So he'd click on and say it and Sean would have a reaction. And puts right now and he'd click off and be like, yeah, I probably shouldn't have said that. I'm like, yeah, I probably shouldn't have said that. But, but he just, you know, that's what's great is he had thick skin and, and uh, you know, you need that. Like Sean needs that. You need someone to, to tell you something and, and you don't have to agree with it. Sometimes you might agree with it three minutes later because um, you just don't want to hear it in the moment. But, but it, you sit there and you dwell on it for a second. And you're like, you know what? They're probably right. And, uh, and that's, that's what you need on that staff. And that's, that's why I always thought Matt was such a great coach is because he just, he he was, he was willing to, to sometimes take the lashing and, and uh, he had great information and uh, I learned a lot from, from Sean. I learned a lot from Matt.
1: Yeah, he he. I I do think he would like to piss me off. He used to <laughs> tell me, "I'm like Matt. Are are you like trying to get me worked up?" He said, "Actually, I am. I think you're better when you're pissed off. <laughs> and if I have to be the guy that you get upset with, then so be it for the greater good of the team, Sean." Team and just
3: because they were so close, you know. It's it's obviously they, they the relationship went back so far, and uh, so it was more. It was really just two brothers. Um, I got a brother. You know, I got two sons. And, and so you see
1: that relationship, and that's exactly what Matt and
0: Sean were. Sean, do you have a good Zach Taylor story you can share?
1: <laughs> oh, no, I, I think the you know, just the the experiences that we shared together, I think just the way that he handled himself over the couple years, here here's what I would say. You know, i I, I did enjoy the times that we shared right off the jump where, Hey, I, I jokingly say it, but I meant it in all sincerity. Like he was a great coach. We miss him for the arm talent that he had in terms of giving guys a good look. Sure. You asked Cooper cup and we've had some high standards in that, uh, receiver group that, you know, where, where coaches are there and, and giving them good looks, but. You know, I think to me what says as much about Zach that that has always resonated was the consistency that he's operated with. And that goes from our two years together to now two years later going into his third year as the Bengals head coach and that was what stood out to me before we even really knew each other was just, you know, there's something about this guy that He's a leader of men. You could see that when he played at Nebraska. Then you could just see the class and the epitome of great communicator. Listen to the way the players that have been around him and the coaches that he's worked with speak on him. You watch the way that he is as a father, as a husband. Uh, But I think what says as much to me about Zach Taylor as anything is watching the way that this is a resilient group. You know, they've gone through some adversity in Cincinnati, but like I said a couple weeks ago, I think the guys really separate themselves when, all right, how do we fight our way out of a hole? And watching the way they played on Monday night, watching them, you know, where is Brandon Allen led you guys to a big Mm -hmm. win against the Texans where you're going up and down the field. Those are the things to me that say this guy's got all the right stuff in him because that's when it's the most difficult as a leader. When it's good, everything's good and, and it's easy. And you know, it's always easy to lead from the front, but how do you stay steady? How do you stay consistent? And this guy has done nothing but stay steady and consistent. And that to me has earned as much respect for the amount of things that I admire and revere about him as anything. And, I, I just, uh, you know, I can't wait to to watch him do his thing and and enjoy doing it because he's a hell of a coach. He's a hell of a guy, and it's good to be able to share a little bit of time with him today for sure. Appreciate
0: that. All right, Zach. Here's our last question. It's something we've asked everybody who's been on the Flying Coach Podcast, and I think we've gotten a lot of great responses. If there's a young coach, high school, Pop Warner. College who wants to reach out to you right now and say, hey, Zach Taylor, NFL head coach, what would be your one piece of advice for me as I get started in this career and I try to aspire to someday be one of the 32? What would be your message to them?
3: Well, I think as when I was a young coach, I always worried about what my next move was. You know, I need to be a quarterback coach. I need to be a quarterback. I can't wait to do that. I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm ready. And, and really what I learned was you got to be where your feet are, which is easy to say. A ton of people say Um, but, but my most enjoyable coaching job uh, up to this point of being a head coach was, was working for Sean. I I was, I was in no hurry to go be a coordinator somewhere, go be a head coach. I just, I I loved being there in the building, trying to do a great job for Sean and Jared and the guys there. Um, and that's, you know, you feel like you do your best work because you're not, you know, eyes elsewhere, trying to get some other job. You're just, you're happy where you are You're with good people. Um, and you're really working hard. And and one thing I look for from people is: Are you a problem solver or are you a problem maker? And that's and someone incredible. I heard that a long time ago. And so I, I've just always tried to solve problems. There's plenty of ones to make. There's ones that come across your table all the time. You can you can complain about them, or you can just try to go solve them. And and uh, that's what's fun about the job. And that that's the advice I'd give you know a young coach is be proactive. If if you work for uh, a quarterback coach, you work for a coordinator, you work for a head coach, be proactive, try, try to guess what may be coming down, down the bike at you at some point and just be proactive about it. So when they ask you, yeah, coach, I, I've already done that. Um, I'll get it to you as quick as possible. Or you don't even tell where you already did it. You just, you just give it to them and, and they're impressed. But um, just, just do your best, be the best quality control you can be, be the best coordinator you can be, be the best tight end coach you can be, whatever it is, um, enjoy that. And, and great opportunities will come your way as long as you're doing that. Um, but again, just, just be a problem solver, you know, don't be the guy that throws a ton of problems at everybody and lets them figure it out. Just, just be creative and figure out ways to solve it.
1: If you say, if you had to say, I love that. Are you a problem solver or a problem maker? That's so good. I'm definitely stealing that one from you, Zach. (laughs) If you had to say two things or, you know, it might not be just two, but when you're looking and you're filling out your staff, these are the things that are non-negotiable. You know, for all these other coaches out here, these are the things that you better check the box in order to be in alignment with what we're looking for as Cincinnati Bengals coaches. And I know we share the same values, you know, with Rams. What what would you say those things are?
3: Well, number number one, honestly, because the players see right through it. If if you're and it really goes hand in hand with, with being a hard worker, you don't have to be the smartest person. Not every coach, I'm not the smartest guy. Not every coach is they have all the answers. Um, but if you will work to find the answers and and you're honest with your players, then you're going to gain the respect and they'll they'll do a lot of things for you. And so, you know, obviously you, you've got to be knowledgeable your position and you've got to be a master at your position so that that you can coach those guys and get the most out of them. But there's going to be times they ask you a question about a game plan or about an opponent and you don't have the answer for them. And if you try to BS your way through it, you're going to lose their respect instantly. Totally. Um, if you're honest with them and say, you know what, I'm going to go ask Sean, I'm going to go ask Zach and, and I'll get you that answer ASAP. And that happens occasionally, then, then you're going to gain the respect and and uh, you know when you're there working, you gain the respect of all your other coaches, you know, because because you're working at your task and um, you're not just there just just filling the time chart and, and trying to get your work done and get out of there. It's it's you're doing quality work to the time you're there. Um, you're honest. You're a good person to be around, and, and those are but we, we feel like we got a staff full of those guys, and, and I'm excited to be around them over someday.
0: You know what's amazing, Absolutely. guys? You say these values. You know what you said. Be a problem solver, not a problem maker. You say, work hard, but don't always be worried about being the smartest guy in there. That applies to corporate culture. That applies to all team sports. I think those are just good core values to have as someone in the world today. As far as being a a person trying to work towards a goal with a team, I, I see it from both of you guys that you're great leaders, but you also respect the work that is put in. And not just for show, not just, hey, look what I did. Can you guys notice when a young coach is doing things maybe without being so self-promotional?
3: Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. When uh, it's, we got a guy, Brad, who's a young coach for us. And, and I, I can ask him to, Hey, put together a cut up of all the RPOs from the AFC West. I'm just making it up. And I, I can sense he's already done something like that. You know, he's already <laughs> proactive enough to think this may be something that helps us down the road. What may Zach may be asking us for. And, and uh, so he, he's he's already got stuff like that, and so he's preparing himself with, with the scheme that's going around the league, around the league, and what's the next step we need to take, and um, you need that from all your coaches. But uh, you know that that's an example of a guy. I, you know, I usually ask him something, and, and I got a pretty good sense he's already done something on his lines.
1: Yeah, those are the things, and really, that's what Zach did. That's what I'd like to think. Hopefully, I've done before, and a lot of the great coaches I've been around—they have a role and responsibilities. And you got these kind of these these general guidelines for what you're looking for, but they redefine the role. They make it even better than what you're looking for. That to me is what the best ones do. It's exactly what Zach did. We've got a lot of guys that I could say the same thing about on our staff. And I think the best, they kind of redefine their roles and they make it even better than what was originally asked of them. And maybe that's what you're doing on Good Morning Football or Flying <laughs> yeah. Coach, huh, Peter? Just trying to do my job, guys.
0: Can
3: I, can I ask one question for you, Peter? No. All right, I, so I was just I uh, last week and, and you're talking about, you know, you put this segment behind you and you on to the next one. How often do you review because you've done a lot of them. How, yeah. how often do you review an episode you did? And, and again, just just kind of coach me up along the lines of something that you, that you looked a lot from 100 episodes ago that you did, that, that you make improvement. But, but what is your studying process go
0: through with that? I think in the first year of the show, I would get caught um, saying things and I would check myself the next day or right after I said it and be like, do I actually feel that way? Do I actually really feel that way? And it's like, you catch yourself And you say, all right, as long as I'm authentic and I believe it and it's accurate in in what I know, that's fine. But I'll never forget. I was, I came in, it was the Monday after the Giants, they might've beaten Sean's Washington team and they they were going to the playoffs they were playing the packers the next week in like seven days and odell and victor cruz and the receivers i don't know who else was in that group they all went down and got on a boat in miami and like partied with i want to say trey songs might have been the guy they were partying with and it was a whole thing in new york and for whatever reason i came on monday monday morning tuesday morning and I was outraged. I was, you know, what are they doing? Don't they realize they have a game? And there's time for that in the off season. And whether that's true or not, that's not me. I don't feel that way. In my heart of hearts, I did not feel that way. So I caught myself, and I'm like, "All right." I, I got up, caught up in the story, and I knew that WFAN, the local New York uh, radio station, would be going that route. And I like played like New York crotchety sports fan, and I'm like, "That's not authentic." So I think. The whole thing with me, and I appreciate you even asking the question, is authenticity and do I really feel that way? And if I do feel that way, am I willing to back that up if I was to be asked again tomorrow and the day after that and the day after that? So did the Giants boat cruise or boat trip really upset me? No, I no. I I mean, they ended up getting the doors blown off them the next week, but one thing's irrelevant to the other. I was doing theater. I was fake upset. And I think anyone who knows me knew that wasn't my true self. And I learned that was just something I did. And you try to move on and try to be authentic to yourself.
1: Yes. That is not in alignment with who you are. We all know that.
0: (laughs) Made for some entertaining TV, Sean. (laughs) All right, Zach.
1: You're awesome, Zach. I appreciate you doing this with us, brother. You bet, guys. That was a blast. Zach, yeah.
0: you're so good, dude. We appreciate you coming on. And each week we, we're we seeing a different side of the coaches and we appreciate you letting us inside and giving us access to the guy you are beyond what we see on the sidelines and necessarily in the press media availability.
3: I appreciate you guys. You guys were awesome. Um, and i uh, just glad to do it. Glad to be a part of it.
0: Zach was great. Sean, I don't think the listeners at home have ever heard Zach Taylor like that. I, to be honest, I didn't know he had that big of personality. He was really good.
1: Yeah, that's who he is. That's what I think has been good about this. Peter is these last few weeks have really, you've gotten to see a different side of some of these coaches that have a lot of, uh, a lot more personality than sometimes we feel like you can really show. in some of these rigid settings where, you know, you're answering questions and you might be stressed out after, you know, things don't go well. I know I can certainly attest to that, but it's been great having these guys on uh, appreciative of their time without a doubt knowing how busy they are
0: zach was awesome he was gracious of his time um and he adds to a great list that we've had and we've already had now robert sala matt lafleur cliff kingsbury hopefully we'll get on some more in the next couple of weeks but before we wrap this episode we got to get to the the portion of the podcast that everyone is talking about there's so much buzz in the air it's called the, the the reader emails and the voicemail, and it's trending, and it's trademarked, and it's got a snazzy name, but the reader emails, reader or listener, I don't even know, Craig Horlbeck, you're our producer. What do we calling this thing? Well, I, th- I think I'm, how,
2: how do you guys feel about me just printing some shirts out? The, the emails and the voicemails, flying coats, <laughs> those
1: will sell quick, I bet.
0: They're hot. They're trending.
1: Why do I sense sarcasm in your voice, Craig? <laughs> well... People Peter, one of these one of these weeks, you're going to come with something better than the emails and the voicemails. I don't know what it is, but surprise me next week. Otherwise, it'll be my final Flying Coach podcast as a co-host with you.
0: We'll be changing <laughs> no, it kidding. promptly. We'll, no, we'll <laughs> be changing it soon. Uh, Craig, why don't we get to it, though? Let's do it. Um, what's our first email this week?
1: All right. This is from
2: uh, Brian in Woodstock, Georgia. He says, I consider the Washington football team coaching staff from 2010 to 2013 to be this generation's Cleveland Browns coaching staff from 91 to 94 under Belichick in terms of being a cradle of future great coaches. Can you tell me one thing you learned from Coach Mike Shanahan about creating a winning culture and developing young leaders? Mm.
1: Yeah, I think uh, the main thing that stands out about Coach Shanahan is the consistency. It's easy to say, hard to do. You know, Everybody's got these buzzwords, but the way that we define consistency is it's the truest measurement of performance. And when you're a hall of fame caliber coach like him, he consistently expected the same thing. He was consistent in his standards that he upheld himself as a leader, as a head coach. He demanded that of the players. And I thought he really demanded that as uh, you know, of his coaches, you know, he's one of those guys that you wanted to work hard because you always knew he was on every little detail that was going on There was no stone that was unturned. Uh, There was a healthy competitiveness that our staff had amongst one another in that environment that he really created. But the consistency and the standards that he upheld day in and day out is, is something that I'll forever take with me. and. And then really, I think a commitment to a philosophy, you know, those things really stood out. You know, he, he's, he's one of the uh, original coaches that did such a phenomenal job of marrying the run in the past. And that's really something that you see for a lot of these upper echelon offenses in any fa- in, you know, really in any level of football and, and coach Shanahan epitomized that as much as anybody.
0: Sean, can I ask you a question about Shanahan? So you're there. Yep. And for a while, you know, Kyle is in between you, his son. Did you have direct access to Mike also? Like, what was the dynamic there with all those young coaches? Because his son is one of them.
1: Yeah. I did. And, and, you know, coach was the true CEO head coach. He knew everything that was going on from offense to defense to the kicking game. You could see, you know, this was, uh, you know, it was his offensive system, but Kyle had really taken it and done a phenomenal job with he and coach Kubiak at Houston and really kind of had made it his own, but there was always a great collaboration. I thought it was really cool watching, you know, two great coaches and, and Kyle and Mike really, uh, have a great father son relationship, but also you talk about two high caliber football coaches and, you know, the ways that they operated day in and day out. And so there was a lot of interaction, you know, I was in essence, Kyle's quality control coach. And so I was drawing the past pictures, I was doing all the breakdowns. And so he, he was, uh, you know, you, you operate at a standard that, you know, you really realize that, Hey, that there's a reason why Kyle's been as successful as he has. And, you know, he was great about being demanding, and I think that's what made a lot of these guys that have worked with him and for him a lot better coach. Myself, Matt LaFleur, you got guys like uh, Mike LaFleur, you know, Robert solid now, and and even, you know, Mike McDaniel's doing a great job as the OC for the Niners.
2: Uh, okay, last question here before we get to the voicemail. This is from Andrew in Wisconsin. He asks... Coach McVeigh mentioned watching college football to find innovative plays in a previous episode. I was wondering if he could tell us which college coaches he regularly watches and finds to be the most innovative. Perhaps the next Cliff Kingsbury, but probably not as handsome.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Lincoln Riley is a guy that I've I've loved watching what they've done since he's been there. And then I, I kind of mentioned it last week, but whether it was a couple years back when you watched Joe Burrow and, and what Joe Brady did a phenomenal job with all their explosives and, and success and efficiency offensively. And then, you know, you look at last year, arguably one of the best college football offenses in the history of the game was what Alabama did. And I thought Steve Sarkeesian was outstanding. Obviously, they had a lot of great players, but you know, you talk about from a schematic standpoint, putting pressure on people, being able to do a lot of different things, whether it's tempo, formations, motions, uh, different ways of creating explosives, being balanced, running and throwing the football. They were as fun to watch as as anybody, and, and that was uh, one of the offenses that definitely stood out with all the great things that they did. Do you have coaches who like
2: study smaller schools? You don't have time to watch who are like, Hey, Sean, you got to see what Norfolk state is doing. Yeah, on
0: offense. Good question.
1: Yes. Uh, I think there's always the element of, all right, this is something that fits within the framework of our offense. I thought Cliff uh, alluded to it last week. It's like, all right, you might see a lot of good plays, but you got to first ask yourself, does it fit with your personnel and then how you want to foundationally operate and philosophically operate. And so there's a lot of guys, we got a lot of coaches in our building that love football and they know how we want to operate. And if they see something, uh, it doesn't matter where it's coming from. No good idea or no idea, uh, no matter what level is not good enough to be stolen from us. Like I said, uh, all the best coaches are the best thieves. And we absolutely have, have pulled from a bunch of different places. But you know, when you're studying a lot of these college players, our coaches will tag good ideas and they'll say, you got to see some of this stuff that that. some of these different places are are checking out. And, you know, we definitely have, uh, have stolen a handful of those ideas without a doubt.
0: Can you, can you name one? I mean, I would love this if there was a smaller school or there wasn't a big program where you're like, Hey, I saw this from this team. That would be really neat to hear. Do they know, are they watching the Rams one day? And they're like, that's my play.
1: Depends on, uh, if, if I say, you know, it depends on when it was run. We can usually go back and fact check it based on the dates. You can really see who ran it first, but I'll tell you one of the guys, you know, who's now the OC at Pittsburgh or at, yeah, at Pittsburgh. And I think he was the OC at the University of Pitt is Matt Canada. When he was running all these, different jet sweeps and types of motions pre-snap. That was something that I remember seeing a couple years ago. Some of our coaches brought that to my attention and that had somewhat of an influence on what we started really doing in 18. And, you know, even going back to before we got here, some of the different ways that they were utilizing Tavon Austin, when uh, Brian Schottenheimer was the OC, those are things that, you know, it's, it's all right. What are the best ways to express the skill set of your players, your personnel? And, you know, I just, that's one of the things that kind of, off the top of my head came to mind. And I mean, I even, even we implement some things that I learned when I was at Maris, you know, running the triple option. It just might be instead of under the center running triple option. You you do a variation of kind of reading one instead of having to block them and, and trying to change the math in a favorable manner for you offensively or vice versa defensively. That's
0: great.
2: Okay. Let's get to the voicemail here. Here we go.
1: Hi, I'm Charles from Connecticut. And I had a question for both of you, both in terms of coaching and as an analyst, There's sometimes drawn a dichotomy between the sort of stereotype of the analytics mind and the, you know, the football guy stereotype or however you want to put that. I sort of want to know, how do you approach knowledge in the sense of how do you balance things that you can know, you know, empirically or mathematically at least, versus stuff, you know, experientially or by trial and error? And is there really any dichotomy at all? thank you again and really like the
2: show. So it's basically, you know, how often do you betray what the analytics tell you to do to go instead with your gut or what you've learned from experience?
1: Yeah, Uh, it's a very good question. And I think it's a balance. And to say that I can put an exact percentage on that balance wouldn't be accurate. The interesting thing I think about football is there is a lot of analytical evidence that helps facilitate sound decision-making. But what you have to take into account that I think is so important of finding that balance as a coach is, all right, let's use that knowledge to our advantage. But let's also understand that what makes football so entertaining and engaging is there's 22 moving parts on every single snap and nothing ever really goes exactly according to plan. There's matchups, there's different things that you can expect situationally. For example, there's a lot of fourth downs that it does make sense. And if you just look at the overarching theme, oh yeah, fourth and one you should go for. it. But if I told you that we got our third string right tackle at the Mm -hmm. point of attack for our short yardage call and JJ Watt has been teeing off all day, I'll tell you that, hey, I understand the analytics, but I would respectfully say maybe this might not be the best percentage for us. So. It is a balance like everything, but I think it's something that you have to be engaged and enlightened to understand. And and a lot of that stuff uh, is for people that are a lot smarter than me, but you certainly use it. Uh, But to say that there's a, a perfect dichotomy, I don't know, but it is a part of the decision making process that you would be naive to ignore. And it's something that we definitely implement and has been helpful in making sound decisions. And then ultimately it's about, you know, our guys being able to execute in those crunch time moments.
0: And I think, you know, Sean, that was so well put because, you know, we get these grades from the pro football focus who do an amazing job. And then in the heat of the moment, you don't necessarily say, okay, I'm just looking at a chart or I'm looking at what I'm supposed to do. Cause you've got other things going on. I look at roster management though, and you could take a, a numerous, you know, selections where people immediately will say, well, they didn't need that on their roster. And they'll give the person a D on the draft grade or an F on the draft grade. How could you take him when this guy was ranked here? It, it, the analytics, it, you don't know the team. You don't necessarily know the chemistry, what their needs are inside, of, inside the locker room, or maybe what they value as a team. So I'll give you an example. You know, the Ravens, they draft this guy, Ben Mason, out of Uh, Michigan and he's a big fullback and he could play tight end and he looks like he he might as well be Pat Ricard or Nick Boyle and people are trashing the pick saying he's not a draftable player yet before what the Ravens do that guy's got a role and he's going to play a huge part in it so it's almost like there is no straight way to say, hey, this is how you build this roster. Every team is different. There's 32 teams. They've got different characters. They've got different personalities and they have different ways of going about their business. And the same way that the caller just said, hey, you know, sometimes you've got your football guy and your analytics guy. I would also advise not against judging a book by its cover. Some of the, some of the most intimidating biggest guys that are in coaching also happen to be the sharpest minds and on vice versa. Some of the guys in the front office and coaching who you don't look like your typical football players or didn't play football might be the sharpest when it comes to not only coaching football, but dealing with players. And I've seen that time and time again. So don't let, don't let someone's appearance or what their you know resume as a player is really come into play when you're talking about being a coach.
1: Yeah, no, it, it very, uh, well said there, Peter. The The thing that I do think can be a little bit more cut and dry is all right usage of timeouts and the clock management element of it. You know, those are a little bit more cut and dry, statistically driven where hey, there's a clock. But when you start talking about your decision making that involves the human element, that is a huge part of it. That's where that delicate balance comes into play. And I think like anything, hard work pays off learning from the good decisions, but also the bad ones, which no, I'm not afraid to admit there's been a lot of those and got to be able to learn from them and, and use them as a learning op moving forward. And it is a, it's a balance for that dichotomy.
0: Do you consider yourself an analytics coach or a
1: football guy? No, I, I think you got to be able to balance both. I, I think there's a lot of things that analytically, sometimes I would maybe go against the grain based on, all right, well, there's a whole week of preparation. There are those 22 moving parts that might go against the grain for some of the analytically driven decisions on, uh, you know, you go for it here or different things like that. I, those are the things that I think you have to take into account. And yeah, it is a big part of it, but also the matchups, the players The time in the game, the situation, the feel for the flow of the game, that's where I think a lot of these great decision makers in our game really separate themselves by that feel that they have, but balance in both ends of the spectrum because they are both important.
2: Love Love it. (laughs) What's the biggest question in analytics? Sean, do you believe in momentum? Ooh.
1: Oh, hell yeah. Momentum is a real thing. No doubt about it. I mean, when guys get going and they're playing well and they've got confidence, I mean, it, it happens in sports. You're watching the NBA playoffs right now. Uh, ask Kawhi Leonard that after the way that he finished up that series. You know, uh, the answer is yes, I do believe in momentum. And and I think it can be really powerful in both directions, either positively or negatively, depending upon that type of momentum that you got going for you.
0: Good stuff. Sean McVay. What about you, Craig?
1: Do you believe in momentum? I 100%
2: believe in momentum. I think it's gone. We've gone too far with analytics to argue that momentum doesn't exist. We're not considering these people as human beings.
1: So would that be, is that the, uh, from the analytics background stuff, Is would that be the case that they don't believe in momentum?
2: Oh, absolutely. Like that
1: Ravens-Niners
2: Super Bowl a while ago, remember the, the Ravens were rolling, but then there was that blackout and then the Niners kind of went on that massive comeback and everyone's like, oh yeah, the blackout caused the Ravens to give up the momentum. And the analytics people are like, no, there's no such thing as momentum. That's not how it works. You know, they kind of believe teams don't get hot. You can't get hot at the right time and go on a run. Nothing like that.
1: Yeah. That's, it's just hard for me to understand. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Good stuff as always, Craig. Thank you so much. We'll be back next week. Sean, any final words for the podcast?
1: No final words other than always a pleasure with you too. Zach Taylor was outstanding. Appreciate him coming on with us. Absolutely. So I guess I did have some final words then, huh? It was good. It was great. That's like my pet peeve. You know, one of our, uh, real quick, all right? I'm going to go (laughs) on to my soapbox for a second. You know, we had a guy, um, JW, who's great working with our personnel staff. And um, he uh, he was really one of the few people, you know, you do these draft meetings. You say, hey, anything to add. And most people, no, nothing to add. And then they add something. That's just what I just did to you. But JW was great where he would say nothing to add. And he truly did not add anything (laughs) unless he had something to add. But that doesn't happen as often or as frequently as you would think. Referenced by me saying, no, nothing. And then I did say something.
0: Fantastic stuff. As JW did, I would say this is the final words of the podcast. We will see you all and hear you all or you'll hear us next week.